all I really cared about was becoming a photojournalist and covering these stories. And I just wanted to be in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Darfur, in Congo, in all these places, covering stories that I felt were so incredibly historic and important to cover. That's photojournalist Lindsay Adario. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. As you heard, Lindsay Adario has spent her career as a photojournalist in some of the most troubled regions of the world. Known for combining journalistic rigor with the eye of an artist, Adario captures the grim realities of war in startling and unexpected ways. She trains her camera on the daily struggles of civilians caught in the crossfire. Since her first trip to Afghanistan in 2000, Adario has focused particular attention on women living in male-dominated societies, gaining access to their schools, hospital rooms, and homes. But Adario is no stranger to battle, far from it. She's regularly photographed the front lines. Risk is a factor of her career. Too often, journalists themselves are casualties of war. In fact, Lindsay herself has been kidnapped twice by enemy soldiers, first in Iraq and then in Libya. But still, she goes back. Lindsay Adario's work appears regularly in the New York Times and National Geographic, and it's been seen in museums throughout the world. She's been awarded both a Pulitzer Prize and a MacArthur Genius Grant. Adario has also written a book about her experiences as a photographer called It's What I Do, which just came out in paperback. The book's photographs are breathtaking, but they're matched by Adario's writing, which conveys the demands, the drive, the fear, and the exhilaration of covering war. It's an unforgettable memoir written by someone who's as equally at home with text as with image. There is a fair amount of reporting and writing that goes into photography, at least for me. I do a lot of interviews, and I, I used to keep journals for many years, and I write like blogs, and sometimes I write emails, like very long descriptive emails to friends if I've survived something or gone through something traumatic. So for me, I was always writing, but I had never really stopped to look back. So the greatest thing about writing the book was that it enabled me to just basically stop and look back at over 15 years of shooting that I just had not stopped and looked back once. And then I got pregnant. And so then I was sort of shooting frantically until I was seven months pregnant because I was so terrified that I would never work again. And and then at seven months, I really buckled down and started writing. That's when I really wrote the core of the book. Well, Lindsay, what, what drew you to photography? When I was about 12 or 13 years old, uh, I was visiting my father. My parents had separated. And I was at his house and I saw a Nikon camera. And I asked about it and he gave it to me. And I started playing with the camera and became obsessed with photography. But for me, it was always something that was a hobby. I didn't know any photojournalists. I didn't know any professional photographers except for a few people. And I just never really considered it something that I would do for a living. How did you figure out photography could be a career? I was studying international relations and graduated from the University of Wisconsin. And when I graduated, all I wanted to do was photograph. And I still at that point wasn't familiar with photojournalism. So I didn't realize that you can sort of marry international relations with photography and 
use the research and use my sort of wherewithal of what's going on in politics and the economy and and combine that with photography until I moved to Argentina. And that's when I started becoming aware of pictures in the newspaper and and I really started getting into uh, photographing for the news and photographing the news and photographing uh, international stories. Let me ask you, how did you learn to compose a picture? There used to be a bookstore in Soho called A Photographer's Place. And I, in the 90s, when I moved back to New York after Argentina, I used to just sit in that uh, bookstore and look at photography books every day, basically. And I was looking at uh, Kudelka, Gilles Perez, Knocked Away, uh, all of these photographers a lot of them were war photographers, but I wasn't even interested in war at that time. I just found the images really dramatic. There were a lot of different photographers who influenced me and inspired me at that time. And I would look at their composition. And I think it's interesting with photography because even if I'm not conscious of the fact when I'm taking a picture, I might be mimicking someone or I might be recalling an image I've seen somewhere in the reserves of my mind and my memory – I think it happens. So for many, many years, I was looking at these books and images. And and then I started freelancing for the Associated Press in New York. And I had an incredible mentor, Bebito Matthews. And he really helped me, helped guide me with composition and taught me to get closer and get more intimate with the subject and really get in there. And I also had great editors at the AP at the time. I was really, really lucky to get a lot of one-on-one feedback. and, And it taught me sort of everything. In your book, It's What I Do, you make it clear that you think photography is about relationships, that your photography is about relationships. Correct. I mean, for me, I'd say like 80% of photography is is about relationships, is about access, is about being there, getting there, doing your homework. There's so much that comes before actually taking a picture. And so to me, that's the most important part because not only – is it about access, but it's about understanding who the people are that I'm photographing and letting them know that I'm not judgmental. You know, I'm strictly there to tell their stories. And that's something that I think any journalist has to sort of impart when they meet someone. When you first got started, you moved You moved abroad. You moved to India. I wanted to move abroad and start working abroad. So I moved to India and I started covering Afghanistan under the Taliban. And that was uh, in 2000, so it was before September 11th. And it was also a place and a region that not many people were interested in and not many people had access to document life under the Taliban. Photography was illegal. uh, It was very difficult to get a visa. It was hard to move around if you did get in. And so I went three times under the Taliban. And then I moved to Mexico City to start working in Latin America. And that's when September 11th happened. How did 9-11 change the trajectory of your career? Well, 9-11 for me defined my career. Immediately I knew I had to get back to the region. I had to get back to South Asia, get to Afghanistan, get to Pakistan. It was a region that I knew very well by then. And I also sort of had a body of work already from before when the Taliban was in power. And I thought, you know, continuity is also something that's very important to me. So I was basically got on the first plane out of Mexico City and then went almost directly to Pakistan and waited for the fall of the Taliban in Kandahar. So to me, 9-11 and the war on terror basically defined the next 15 years of my life. 
You've traveled and you've worked a lot in Muslim countries. And as we know, those societies are very much segregated by gender. But you worked with that and made that work for you. Yes, the Muslim world is, is segregated by gender. And I think what's interesting is that as a woman, people always ask me, you know, is it a hindrance that you're a woman? Does it hold you back? Is it worse? And actually, no, it's an absolute asset. And I have found incredible hospitality and access in the Middle East and in the Muslim world, I think because I'm a woman and because I'm very sincere. And I go to people and say, look, I want to show people what your lives are like. And I think that that's something, as a woman, I can go into families' homes. I can meet both men and women. I can do the stories that my male colleagues do to some extent. I mean, of course, there are limitations. But I can also document the women. And so for me, it's been very important to capitalize on that and to use that because I think it's very important to see both sides or all sides of any story. And so if my male colleagues can't photograph women or can't get access to people's homes in a place like Afghanistan, well, then I should. You're a reasonable person, and your work puts you in situations that are often dangerous and violent. You have to be scared at times. What do you do with that fear? I guess during the fall of the Taliban in 2001, when we were getting ready to go into Kandahar, was really the first time I was sort of terrified. And I was very conscious of the fact that this fear is an integral part of doing this job. And I don't believe that people should sort of pretend like they're not scared. But I do believe it's important to recognize the fear and to try and understand where it's coming from and what the, the actual dangers are and to just be focused. So it's like I take that fear and I put it in a very specific spot. I'm in touch with it often as I'm working. But the thing is I have to keep working. I have to keep photographing. How important is intuition? The most important thing about this job is listening to one's instinct and also to sort of check back in with colleagues and, and people who know a situation and who also can read a situation. And so in Libya, for example, we had been working on the front line for several weeks, every single day in the throes of incredibly difficult combat. We were watching people die all around us for two straight weeks. And then, you know, I sort of started feeling, well, my number's going to come up. I mean, we have to get out of here. You know, we're really testing our fate a lot. I felt like something was going to happen. I just had this feeling. And so I actually gave a hard drive of all of my images up until that point to Brian Denton, a colleague at the New York Times, and said, look, if something happens to me, can you please make sure my pictures survive and FedEx this hard drive to my agency? And, and in fact, two days later, we got kidnapped. Well, let's talk about that kidnapping. You were with three of your colleagues. Tell me what happened. Well, it was March 15th, 2011, and I was working with Tyler Hicks from the New York Times, and we were in a car with our driver, Muhammad, and Anthony Shadid and Steve Farrell, also from the New York Times, drove in from Benghazi to meet up with us in Ajdabia. And Ajdabia at that point was sort of a front line. It was uh, an area that the rebels were holding, and Gaddafi's troops were moving in pretty quickly from the west. And so from that morning, we had a sense that the city was going to fall into the hands of Qaddafi's troops. But we continued working. We were in two vehicles, which is a precaution that many journalists take in case one vehicle breaks down or something happens, you have a backup car. We were in two vehicles. And at some point, as the fighting got heavier and heavier and as the combat was moving in, 
one of the drivers, Anthony and Steve's driver, just quit. I mean, he literally stopped the car in the middle of the battle and said, my brother's been shot. I'm leaving. And he dumped their stuff on the sidewalk and left. And so we all ended up in one car. There were four of us and Muhammad, the driver. And at that point, it was clear that the city was about to fall. And so we got word that Gaddafi had snipers in the city. We started hearing bullets, snipers, which means obviously there are troops in the city. Our driver started getting phone calls saying Gaddafi's men were in the town. And when we finally made a decision to flee east, we ran directly into one of Gaddafi's checkpoints. We sort of saw them on the horizon. And at that moment, you have to make a decision. It's chaos because everyone in the car knew that that was the worst possible thing, sure of getting shot or hit by a mortar. It's the worst thing that could happen is getting taken by Gaddafi's troops because Gaddafi had repeatedly announced if you see journalists, they're spies and you should kill them. And so we were all fighting about keep driving, don't stop, stop the car. Everyone was sort of yelling something different. And when we reached the checkpoint, it was complete mayhem. Uh, Mohammed stopped the car, jumped out, said, we're journalists. And we never saw him again because the rebels started opening fire on our checkpoint. So we were literally caught in like a wall of bullets. And eventually we got behind this sort of cement building because, of course, we had to get behind cover. I mean, the most dangerous thing were the bullets. So we got behind this building and there were a handful of soldiers and they were they told us to lie face down in the dirt and they put guns to our heads. They asked for our passports and they started searching us and tied me up, tied my hands behind my back and my, my feet together. They decided not to shoot us for whatever reason. Later, Anthony Shadid translated that the commander said, you can't kill them, they're American. And then we were sort of carried away and put in vehicles on the front line. So literally for hours as bullets and mortar rounds and tank rounds landed all around us, we were tied up in these vehicles in the middle of the fighting. You know, over the course of the first three days, we were tied up, blindfolded, beaten. Uh, the men were really smashed in the back of the head with the butts of the guns. For me, as the only woman, I was groped repeatedly. Uh, they touched my breasts and my butt and, and were very aggressive. Also punched me in the face and repeated death threats. You know, repeatedly, we will kill you tonight. Tonight, you will die. I've been held hostage twice now, actually, once in Iraq and once in Libya. And the scariest thing about any experience or that that particular experience is that you don't know what's going to happen next. So I think the, the mind is very powerful and it has the ability to survive and to go into the survival mode and to just stay alive. But the scary thing is you have no idea how long it will last and how bad it will get. Did your family have any sense of where you were, of what was going on? What, what were they thinking? I think the most stressful thing for me about this job is what I put my family through, what I put my husband and my parents and my sisters. I mean, I come from a, a big Italian-American family, and we're incredibly close, and we all talk on the phone all the time, and we're, we're very tight. And so I think when I was in Libya, we were held for about a week, and the entire time all I can think about was I feel so horrible for what I'm putting my family through because I knew that to them— we were missing. And we had no idea what the outside world knew. We had no idea if uh, Libya had admitted to having us or if they thought we were dead. And in fact, we found out later that for the first three days, 
there was no information about us. And my husband, who was a journalist with Reuters for many years, he intuited, obviously, that if our bodies hadn't turned up, we had just been captured. And so he started sort of working the phones and, and dealing with his contacts in Turkey because he had been bureau chief in Turkey. And at that time, Turkey was acting for a proxy for the American government who had already pulled out. My husband is incredibly solid and pragmatic, and he's a journalist, so he understands this work. And so I knew he would be okay, but there's an, an incredible amount of guilt. You know, I just feel horrible about what I've put my family through both times. And of course, it was easier before I was married because it was me, you know. Now I have a son and I have my husband, and I carry that with me. The full title of your book is It's What I Do, A Photographer's Life of Love and War. And you're, you were, you're very honest about the fact that, you know, your personal life, because you were a photojournalist who, who worked primarily in conflict zones, that it was, it was very difficult and challenging to have relationships. Yeah, for many, many years, it was almost impossible. I think it depends on the person. Um, you know, obviously, any relationship takes work. And it takes commitment. And I kept fooling myself into thinking that I was putting a lot of work into relationships when in reality, I was never home. You know, all I really cared about was becoming a photojournalist and covering these stories that I felt were so incredibly historic and important to cover. And I just wanted to be in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Darfur, in Congo, in all these places, covering stories that I really believed needed the coverage. And so whatever relationship I was in was always sort of second to that passion and to that belief that I had to be there. Well, you quote the great photographer Robert Kappa saying, if your pictures aren't good enough, you're not close enough. But that is an especially hard thing to do when you have a husband and a child, particularly. Yeah, I mean, I think anyone who's a photographer who covers dangerous situations knows that you there's no secret. You have to be there. You have to be on the front. You have to be exactly where the action is. If your goal is to cover war, there are certainly tons of stories on the margins of war and other humanitarian stories, stories that are less dangerous. And so since Libya, I'm still working in many of the places that I used to work in, like Afghanistan and Iraq, and I went into Syria recently. And But I'm trying to do it by covering the humanitarian angle or trying to cover the margins rather than being in the throes of combat. You're taking pictures of people in heartbreakingly tragic circumstances. And it would seem to me that your camera is a way of, on one hand, letting you get to the heart of what's going on, but on the other hand, kind of provides some protection for you as well. It gives you some emotional distance. Is, is that accurate? Of course. I mean, that's totally accurate. I would say my camera, first of all, enables me access because everyone understands what a photojournalist does. There are very few parts of the world one can go now where people are not familiar with, with photos and cameras and journalism. So I do get access to these unbelievably intimate moments that I sometimes can't even believe I'm there. I think when it is a particularly heart-wrenching scene or if I'm photographing someone dying or it's a funeral or I've seen everything, I, I often keep the camera in front of my face as a way to not get too close, as a way to sort of distance myself and, 
and almost pretend like I'm watching a movie rather than actually being present. Because the second I put my camera down, I often get very choked up and really have to, and I get very overwhelmed. When you're in a situation where news is breaking, conflicts are are right in front of you, how does the artistry, the composition of a picture come into what you do at that moment? Well, sometimes it's almost impossible to think about how to compose a shot in the middle of complete chaos. I mean, obviously, it's like ingrained in my mind at this point. I don't think about it that much. I mean, honestly, I've been taking pictures for so many years, and I've taken thousands and thousands and thousands of pictures. And when I approach a situation, I'm immediately looking for certain elements. I'm looking for the subject, the story, the light, the composition, and I'm looking for the frame in which it all comes together at once. And so even if I'm covering a battle, I'm looking for those very specific things. And sometimes if I don't have the time to compose, well, you know, I do the best I can, but sometimes I physically can't get close enough or there are all sorts of elements that go into taking a good picture. But when I do have time, when when it is an assignment or a topic that there is the luxury of time and, and getting to know the subject and getting to be able to wait for the right light and compose a picture, well, it's a totally different story because, you know, there is no excuse. Now, you also work for National Geographic. What led you there? I covered breaking news for 15 years. Anytime something happened, I was on a plane and there. And I think at some point my work was sort of stunted. Like it wasn't getting any better. I just felt like I was at the same level. And I started working for National Geographic in 2008. And suddenly I was given two months to work on a story. And I had editors who would work one-on-one with me. Sarah Lean from National Geographic, who is now the director of photography, worked with me on my first two or three stories and really just brought me to the next level in terms of, you know, looking for the overview, looking for this and taking time. And and so I think that was incredibly important for the development of my work and, and storytelling, really. Do you have a preference? Do you prefer being able to spend more time on a photo or do you prefer the challenge of having to shoot a picture very quickly in a precarious situation? Well, I think it's somewhere in the middle, actually. I think it's somewhere in the middle. I still do assignments for National Geographic, but I still work for the New York Times. I still shoot, on occasion, news stories, like I was in Turkey when the bombs went off, and so was covering breaking news for a week, and or five days, and every day, just sort of following what, the, what was happening. And yes, I do still love those stories because I believe they're so important to cover and I believe the world needs to see what's happening in those moments and what emotion is involved and how people are suffering because of terrorism and and how everyone is really suffering because of it. It's not just Westerners, it's everyone. And so I think I still love covering those stories and I still love working for National Geographic. I love the balance. I like being able to do both. You received a MacArthur Genius Award. I did. (laughs) Congratulations. Thank you. I'd love to hear the story of how you found out. Yeah, I was totally shocked. I uh, was in Istanbul, where I was living, and I had just had a really bad car accident in Pakistan uh, in April 2009. And my driver, Raza, was killed, and I was in and out of the hospital. I had surgery and basically out on my back for about seven weeks. 
you know, as a freelancer, if you don't work, you don't make money. There's no backup, you know. And for me, I had always relied on the fact that I worked nonstop. And suddenly, I was about to get married. I got married after the car accident about eight weeks later. And in about August, I basically had run out of money. I had no money. And I had just gone back to work. And I was really stressed and and quite traumatized after the car accident. It was uh, Raza, our driver who was killed, was incredible. And he was a friend to not only me, but so many journalists. And so going back to work was pretty tough. And, And so I got a phone call in probably October. And I was sitting in my apartment and and I got a call from a Chicago number and I thought it was like a credit card. And so I picked up the phone but sort of like, hello, and he said, you know, this is Robert Gallucci and I'm the president of the MacArthur Foundation. And he said, do you know what that is? And I said, yes. And he said, I'd like to tell you that you've been named a fellow. And I was silent. And I thought for sure he had the wrong person. And he said, are you there? And I said, yes. And he said, do you know what that means? And I said, do you have the right person? (laughs) And he said, you were born November 13th, 1973 in Norwalk, Connecticut, right? And I said, yeah, that's me. And he said, you will receive $25,000 every tax quarter for the next five years. And I basically almost threw up. Like I couldn't believe that it was I thought it was a joke. And so we had this whole conversation and I was kind of in shock. I was just like listening to him. So this is 2009 and the situation in Afghanistan had gotten really bad. And he said, so before we hang up, uh, what do you think about the situation in Afghanistan? And I was so nervous and in such shock that I was like, oh, uh, you know, it's a quandary. (laughs) And I thought, oh, my God, he's going to take it away from me. He's going to say I'm not a genius, you know. (laughs) And so he said, you know, you can't tell anyone for two weeks. And I said, well, can I tell my husband? And he said, well, can he keep a secret? And I said, yes. And and I kept thinking like, oh, my God, if I tell someone, then they're going to take it away. I was so paranoid that it was all a dream. I hung up the phone and I Googled the number and it was the MacArthur Foundation. And I sat in my living room and cried for like 10 minutes. I just like wept and said, I can't believe this is really happening. And then I sort of said, "Okay, pull yourself together, (laughs) you know. And so I didn't want to get on the phone because, of course, I had worked for years in dictatorships where everyone's phone is tapped, you know. So I was like, I don't want to make a phone call because what if they're listening? Like, what if they know? (laughs) And so I walked to the subway to meet my husband um, when he got off work. And I was standing outside the subway. I was basically waiting there for like an hour, just waiting for him to come out. You know, it was incredible. It's definitely one of the most incredible things that's ever happened to me. It's such a wonderful award on many levels. I mean, obviously, there's the acknowledgement, but also financial freedom for five whole years. What a blessing. It's unbelievable. I mean, I had spent so many years just trying to make it and never having a dollar, never having any money. And, and it's also the validation. You know, it's also being recognized on a professional level. I mean, it's just an incredible, incredible honor. And it, it couldn't have come at a better time because I'd really gone through so much with the car accident and healing and the trauma. And then it was huge. You're a mom now. You have a son. Mm-hmm. Correct. And you mentioned you're kind of recalibrating the risks that you're willing to take because you are a mother. Yes. But does being a mother change your understanding or the depth of feeling in what you're photographing? 
Yes, it has made it a lot harder to do this work. With every child I photograph or see dying, I just think, what if that were Lucas? And it kills me. I mean, I have a very hard time looking at images that I've taken and looking at images that my colleagues take when it involves children. And I and I think every parent's biggest nightmare is that something would happen to their child. And so, so much of what I'm doing involves children, children who are fleeing for their lives, who are refugees, who are dying, who have meningitis, malaria. I mean, there's just a countless number of stories and ways that I've watched children suffer. And I, it's very, very difficult to see now as a mother. You end your book by saying you live in peace and you witness war. That bifurcation, I could imagine, can be difficult at times. I mean, I guess it's difficult, but I think I'm constantly remembering and reminding myself of how lucky I am that I grew up in America. I live in a peaceful place right now. I live in London. I have a place in New York, and I come back here, and I see all the people I love and my friends and And there is a a continuity to my life, no matter how crazy it is and no matter how much I travel. And that is something that so many people around the world just don't have anymore because they're fleeing. I mean, 60 million people right now are displaced from their homes because of war and persecution. That is an astonishing figure. And I think anyone who lives in peace has to recognize how lucky they are. That's Lindsay Adario. Her book is called It's What I Do, A Photographer's Life of Love and War. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.